You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 34. I'm flying along and, you know, there's little tickles of raw going off here and there and everything. And all of a sudden, this huge light illuminates underneath me. And I'm thinking it's a missile launch. And I was I was upside down looking for it before I could even think about it. And I, I had one finger on the store's jettison button. And turned out it wasn't a SAM launch. It was a 117 bomb that had got off. And the light from the explosion had propagated through the cloud. Altitude. Altitude. Tower at 26 is released to you, runway 610, What's up, and thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm your host, John Waters, call sign Rain, former Air Force F-16 pilot. Today, my guest is retired Lieutenant Colonel Mike Hilt Hilton. He's flown nearly every block of the F-16, also the F-117, and he currently instructs at a flight school outside D.C., Piston to Jet. We're going to talk about his aviation career. Before we do that, I'd like to thank all my Patreon supporters for helping the podcast grow. If you're looking for additional content, Hiltz, as well as many of the guests, have left a There I Was story, which is exclusive to Patreon supporters, as well as you'll get ad-free and uncut episodes, as well as early episodes and some additional content. You can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast if you're interested. Also, shout out to all those who left a rating review over on iTunes. That helps the podcast grow. If you got three to five seconds to spare, swing over to iTunes, drop a rating review. It'll help the podcast out. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Hiltz. Happy to do it. I think a lot of people like enjoying it. And happy to have you join me on the podcast, Hiltz, and tell me a little bit about your your career and your journey through aviation and life. So kind of before you're rolling into that, will you tell me a little bit about who you are? I always say the standard elevator pitch. So people kind of know just broad brush who we're talking to. Sure. So uh, I was born in a small town in Oregon. Uh, went to high school, mostly around the Portland area. Three weeks after I graduated high school, I showed up at the Air Force Academy, the class of 84. Um, got a pilot training slot three weeks after graduation. So instead of taking the 30 days of leave, I was like, you mean I can get in a cockpit one week earlier? Okay. So <laughs> headed off to Williams Air Force Base uh, through pilot training. Uh, got a Viper out of pilot training. And then off to what we called Lift at the time. It keeps changing names, but it was blue T-38s with a hard point and wet film and a gun pod. The gun pod was pretty fun. Um, like it. Left there, went to McDill for uh, the B course. Um, flying, started with block 10s. And then uh, small tail 15s, um, got through that pretty well, went to Torhome, which there's no longer U.S. Air Force presence there. Yeah, Did two years at Torhome, and then uh, from there I went to Homestead, still flying a Initial cadre in a squadron had 24 airplanes and 13 pilots and was not IOC. So that was pretty pretty sweet deal. Uh, left Homestead, went to Kunsan, uh, did my year there. And then um, I was looking at a white jet and uh, my boss calls me. I was at the last Coke Thunder when the volcano blew up. Okay. And he calls me and says, uh, hey, the 117 board didn't select anybody. Do you want to put a package in? So I did. So then I went off to Tonopah, uh, 
was there for seven months and then we moved to Holloman. Did that, did one combat uh, flight and that, which was pretty exciting. Same, same mission that Tuna was on. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, after Homestead, I did a staff tour in uh, NATO in Northern Germany, which was interesting, but it was still a staff tour. Went to Maxwell for school. And then when I stood in line with everybody else, they said, you need to go to the staff and you need to go do this. And they got to me and said, oh, you need to go back to your weapon system. And I was like, okay, twist my arm. Yeah, so true. I sent me back to Luke for the long TX course. And then ended up at Shaw flying the Block 50 uh, combat tour at Amiano and Kosovo. And then I went from there to be the OSS commander at Kunsan again, and then uh, retired off the air staff. Nice. That's I sat around for a couple of years and my wife said, how come you're not flying? And I had all these excuses about being burned out. I said, that's ah, a load of crap. Take your GI bill, go out to the airport, figure it out. So put myself through the CFI course, the double I course, the MEI course, just to get my chops and then started teaching. And I haven't stopped flying since. Yeah. Living the dream. You know, <laughs> you, you mentioned the long TX course. I was never fortunate enough to ever go through a TX um, you know, I did, it was a fape, then went to, uh, I did, I guess maybe you can count it MC 12 TX, which was like a joke as far as the, like what you had to do, but it was in the winter time. So there wasn't a whole lot of golf to be played. And then, you know, the B course with the Viper, I was a like, man going back through a TX, you know, as a guy who is qualified in the jet. And for those who don't know, or listening, it's when you're transitioning the TX transitioning course. So it might be you're out of the jet for staff or you flew the F-16 and you're transitioning to F-35. But it's like going through as like a field grade officer, like you have no responsibility other than just to hone your skill set and your craft of flying. You don't have any additional BS job or anything like that. It's just show up, study, fly, and be the best lethal killing machine you can be. Like It was, it was, it was actually pretty fun because my class had two students. It was me and uh, my buddy Pickle McGillicuddy who um, retired as a three-star. So it was just him and I going through the course. And I was living in the BOQ, and he was there with his wife, had a house and everything. So, yeah, it didn't completely suck. Yeah. <laughs> there were there worse things to be doing in life. I was like, yeah. There things you could be doing. TX, sign me up for that. And I didn't know what I didn't know back in the day. So yeah. you stay in long enough, you'll go through a TX at some point, And it just seems like a really good deal. I'm, yeah. And reminds me, I actually do remember, right? We had an Eagle guy in my pit class. So, you know, he's going to the T6 and he just wanted to proficiency advance and move as, as quickly through it as possible. Looking back at that, I'm like, man, you just had like a cush deal. Like just soak it up, fly as much as you can. And then there's paperwork and a lot of non-flying stuff that's waiting for you on the end of that course, you know? So, yeah. Well, that was a good gig. yeah. Interesting. I'm curious, the uh, block 10. So starting off flying that, for those, again, who don't know, Block 10 has long since left the active duty and the Guard and Reserve Inventory of the United States Air Force. I assume by that point, the Block 10, the side stick was moving just a little bit. It was. It was moving. Um, the, so I only flew a few rides in that. The squadron was transitioning to the small tail 15s, but it was Block 15B. Okay. So for people who don't know, the block number is sort of the hardware configuration and then the suffix is sort of the software configuration. So block 15B, um, we didn't have the fancy upfront controller stuff. So we had yeah. a thing called a fire control nav panel, the FICNIP. And it was on the left panel behind the throttle. And that's where you had to type hand jam in all your lat longs. Yeah, that's super ergonomic. Uh -huh. That's very like Soviet design. <laughs> yeah. 
And then the the heads up display control had these little tiny silver switches that if you were wearing anything but your summer flying gloves, you couldn't manipulate without hitting all of them. But one of them actually had, it was basically a piece of S-curves. It was an energy management switch, and it would show you where you were on John Boyd's uh, maneuver diagram in the HUD. You couldn't fly with it. You could fly a perfect loop with it, but right. there wasn't much else you could do with it. So there was kind of those weird kind of things. We had a red reticle um, as a backup, um, which was, and we had to qualify in manual bombing too. Ugh. But the thing about the small tail was that that was a turning machine. I thought I was somebody. So I show up there, you know, big bad fighter pilot, and I'm in a B model with an instructor on my very first transition ride. I pitch up initial and I'm like, I'm going to show this guy that this is where I belong. And I roll that thing up and he's laughing the whole turn. I can't figure out why. Well, when I get, when I roll up 180 degrees after coming up initial, I can't see the runway because I'm still over the top of it. So the thing, the thing would really turn right up itself. <laughs> it, was, awesome. it was a pretty impressive airplane. The downfall was in the BFM phase in my class, we put three of them out of control. Yeah. So you know that, that master pitch override switch, yeah. it really worked. Yeah, so did you get to test that out? I did not, but three of my classmates did. Yeah, interesting. I wonder, you, know, you flew the Block 50 towards the end of your career. You know, I don't have anything to compare it to other than a Block 42, which it's just the power difference, really, which makes it significantly better. But comparing those two, like a Block 50 versus a Block 15, since you flew them, I know there's a little bit of space in between those, but was it that big of a difference as far as handling characteristics and how that jet performed? Not really. I mean, the, the turn rate was better on the small tail block 15, um, but the power that you had in the block 50, I mean, you get in a flat scissors, you have to knock it off because you're going out of the top of the area. Yeah. In a block 15, you were going to the bottom. So you just, you know, those, those old Pratt uh, 200 engines just didn't have the same thrust as the, as the mighty GE 229. And you could really tell the difference. Yeah. I always need it. I'm like simple minded and not very smart, but you know, you can solve a lot of problems with power. So block 50 is pretty nice to, well, I messed that up. So just going to power my way out of it. Well, you you can say that on several of your podcasts, you may have met your match tonight. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> no, I, that's I enjoyed flying the block 15. So back then the block 15 B uh, for your stores, you had the codes. Do you remember the Smiz codes? So uh, I never flew with them because my buddy, he went to Fort Worth, you know, he had an analog flickus, and he was telling mm -hmm. me the stories of that. I'm like, I just flip a switch, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> but he was telling me, I, you know, it's a guard jet, so it's kind of apples and oranges as far as that. But he was just describing the process of inputting weapons into the Smiz. So, for, again, everyone listening, that's how you're loading up, what are on the store, you know, what's on the stations. Is it a GBU-12 or GBU-38 or AIM-9? And he was, like, doing hex code, making the yeah, inputs. Yeah, so you had, you had a three- or four-digit code, I can't remember, for each each rail and each store. So you had to load the rail, then you had to load the store on it. And, of course, you had a secret decoder ring to put all these yeah. codes in, but that took some manipulation. And even in the early Block 30s, uh, the C models, they still had SMIS codes. So, and we didn't have, you know, it wasn't until block 15, I want to say it was S1 or S2 that we actually had data transfer cartridges that had a whopping 64K of memory that you could program all that stuff. And the thing weighed about two pounds Yeah, that you would slam in there and it would load your route and your stores. And I think that was about it. 
I think the data cartridge is still the same. It might be 128 kilobytes is what you get out of it now. Um, but I couldn't imagine doing it in today's time. You know, like I remember dropping you know, like four weapons, be like two GBU 38s and two GBU 54s, all with different delay settings, different fuses. And now you're like, I, it'd be, it would be impossible to be infected. Obviously that's what technology does. It leverage, leverage technology, make it a little bit simpler and easier for the yeah, layman, to, if you will. Program in how to burst for CBU and all that stuff. And it was all hand jam. Yeah. So if you were doing an air to air mission, um, you had 10 minutes from engine start to taxi. And if you're doing an air to ground mission, you had 15 minutes and that was manually putting all that data in so that you can make the check in a taxi. I can only imagine the shenanigans and stories that exist from that because, I mean, I got shenanigans stories with stuff. You're like, that should be pretty simple. How did they drop the bomb in the wrong place? How did they drop a bomb without clearance? You know, you're like, it happens. Well, so here's, so we didn't, there was no GPS, right? These were INSs and they were okay, right? They kind of get you in the general vicinity. So we take a four ship cross country from Torhone to Alkenbury. Then rough, there's rough. shenanigans ensue that night, and the next day, the you know you're you're bleeding to death through your eyeballs. We step out to the jets, and we're going to Ramstein, and we all aligned our INSs to the wrong side of the prime meridian. <laughs> and we get airborne, talking to Dutch Mill, and the flight lead goes alpha check to this point, and everybody had a wildly different bearing and range to the point we're looking at. So the sh- and and. There, there's many, many stories like that, but yeah, it's pretty easy to screw it up. <laughs> I, you know, I think I've heard that exact same story even today, right? You're like, I think I'm trying, I know I'm, I know I've done it. I'm trying to think of it. it I probably, I caught it because it didn't evolve into a story, but you know, especially deployed in like the first couple sorties, you type, you know, West instead of East into mm-hmm. the lat longs. And I know for a fact too, um, one of the first like deliberate strikes doing an OIR. I was like looking at the coordinates and the KIOC had set over, set over all the weapons coordinates in minutes, decimal seconds. So we're like, all right, well, we got to do some conversion here. Like luckily <laughs> I was, I was doing yeah planning and caught it. Like, I don't know how, I mean, dumb luck that I caught it fast forward a couple months and now I'm going to the KIOC and this had happened a couple different times. And I was going to do my LNO tour and I was sitting there and a, strike popped up to pass along. I look at the coordinates and I'm like, Hey, these are all in minutes, decimal seconds. I'm like, who generates these? Right. And it's a guy who's like four desks down. So I go, I'm like, Hey, one first, I'm like, I asked the strike you guy next to me. Like, do you guys use minutes, decimal seconds? He's like, no, you know, we use minutes, decimal minutes. And so I go around the room, every fighter, every bomber, no one uses minutes, decimal seconds, except a T lamb. So, there's oh, literally no yeah. customer in this fight that is using this this system, and this is how we're passing deliberate strike coordinates to our fighters and bombers. Like you're just asking for this bomb to go through some house or some farm, kill some goat or whatever it is. Um, well, and yeah, we, we had problems with uh, so they were changing coordinate systems, and we went from WGS seventy two to WGS eighty four, and those are very different. Yeah, and that that'll screw you up too. So yeah, there's there was all kinds of things like that, and especially when you're sitting on a nuke line, and you know you, you want to make sure you're going to the right spot, yeah. right? So yeah. um, that was always something we'd actually write swing checks on our card. So for every point that you had, you'd put a bearing and range from where you were sitting. So you type all the stuff in, and then you'd start. 
there was a thumb wheel on the FICNIP and you'd thumb through each turn point to check your bearing and range on your HSI to make sure that you didn't do something really stupid. You know, and I think most people real, don't realize how, like, I mean, it's coming down to dropping live ordinance and it could be something as simple as just a different grid reference system that person A uses that is generating and passing to person B who's going to drop bombs. And uh, we get away with it a lot, but it's like shocking. That was shocking to me. That was, that was a, that was not just a one-off occurrence. You're like, I could go back. Yeah, I run into that problem today in my day job because we're doing testing for some army surveillance aircraft and they go, here's the point we want you to go to. And it's in degrees, minutes, and seconds. And the F it has a universal FMS in it and it doesn't speak that. So I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can't fly to this. So <laughs> we need to, we need to start talking on the same page here. Yeah. Yeah. Like MGRS. Yeah, it's just it makes it simple, but it you know it's uh it it's shocking and how close it can come to just complete catastrophe with something you're like this should be dialed in. We should have solved this problem twenty years ago, but we still go on. And so well, too like the swing checks like that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, you know, you're right. just like ah, oh, the GPS is good. We're way good. We don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Well, it was so when I when I got to Torajon, um, so our primary mission was nuclear. Right. So we sat black lines at Insulik and Aviano. And in order to get mission ready, first, after you got through the whole uh, certification process and all that was your check ride. The, it was the ride before the check ride was a black line, uh, basically a DR low level to a manual loft to a TOT. And you had to pass that. So you, you basically weren't allowed to use your INS. You had to DR oh. the whole thing. And then all the timing for the loft was done manually. So you'd go, you'd hack your clock at the IP. And when you get to a certain point, you'd go to the 4G pull. When you got to a certain pitch, you'd drop the bomb. And I mean, it was, that was our, we called it the backup, but the systems weren't terribly reliable. So it was a really close backup to the primary. Well, one, all of that sounds terrible. Some acronyms in there that you just described, dead reckoning. So, yep, you're just like clock to map to ground, right? Or just fly this bearing for this distance in time. That sounds terrible. Um, also, lofting a nuclear weapon sounds relatively terrifying, especially in an electric jet. That's just me. <laughs> well, that was, you know, we said we didn't plan one-way missions, but I was, and they go, well, if you drop the weapon, and then punch off all your stores, light the burner, do a 5G slice to 200 feet, and then unload, you'll outrun the mock stem of the weapon. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm in an electric airplane. There's an EMP involved here. I'm not going to survive this. So let's hope the ACES-2 still works. Yeah, not to mention the whole like split S, uh, you know, to 200 feet that you don't do. No big deal. Uh, yeah. This would be fine. Not going to end a complete tragedy. We actually practiced that, not to 200 feet, but we'd slice to 500 feet. Um, <laughs> and it, and we would do this. So we would actually practice this single ship. Gosh. So we'd have elephant walks. We call them elephant walks. So that's every exercise during the Cold War, we'd always lose. And we'd have to nuke the enemy, right? So at the end, you know, you're losing the war. So the last thing you got to do is nuke everybody. So they take every jet that's flyable. They load a nuke on it. And they're all single ship lines and they hand you a line and basically you take off on your time, whether you're a second lieutenant or you're a, four, a brigadier general, everybody's off launching single ship to the range to loft a BDU-33 
and then come back. That, that was that was the Cold War. That that sounds terrible. It's great. I mean, too, to see how different you know your experience was versus mine or anyone who's really been growing up in you know the combined contingency operations of Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Like it's a it's a whole other world. Obviously, the nuclear mission is still out there, and uh, you know I think the the pendulum is swinging again. Right, we're mm-hmm. now looking at near peers much more closely, and I think realistically, it's a it's a concern. But I mean, just the dichotomy, and from what you were going through and training for every single day to what your average lieutenant or young captain is doing on the line fighter squadron today, it's crazy. You know, it's just it's just very different. It was a it was a different war. Um, we still lost a lot of people, but um, yeah, it was just a different time, different war. I mean, you got to remember when I when I got to um, when I got to RTU, we were only ten years removed from Vietnam. So that meant the mentality was was very different. There was still there were still doofer books and That's craziness. Strange. It wasn't uh, it wasn't so woke back then in the mid '80s with all those Vietnam guys. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit. I mean, you could on a Friday night, you could we would you know throw our glasses around, we break stuff in the bar, and all you had to do was pay for it when you walked out. Isn't that some you know? So I, I tell a story. I showed up to Shaw in 2013. They had a big, uh, I will say with air quotes, incident that uh, got out. So in my first three years, I had a beer in the squadron, right and for those who don't know that it like drinking and debrief, like having a beer, like that's, that is, that is part of being a fighter pilot, right? Having, having a scotch in the bar, telling stories, cause that's where you're learning um, is part of the history. A lot of that has changed. I cannot imagine. I mean, I, I remember guys like tell me that here dudes ride up into the Oak club in motorcycles. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Like that's like the tame PG version of, of what was happening back then. It's oh, gross. Bad hanging and uh, you know dice games throw a lot of money. The crud uh, matches got pretty exciting. Um, yeah, you play the, play crud with the nurses team, and they were very good at distracting you. Yeah, uh, visually. <laughs> um, but when I when I got to Holloman and lift, you know we'd all come from pilot training, so we're, we're used to that environment from the back then ATC environment. And then we show up at at Holloman, and the flight commander meets us, and he the first meetings in the squadron bar and we walk in and there's X number, however many students there were, there are that many beer modes that are filled up on the bar. And that was the first meeting at lift. I was in Satan's angels, which was part of the Vietnam wolf pack. And the, the very first meeting we're drinking and he goes, you can drink as much as you want, but just don't show up drunk to fly. Different, different times. <laughs> Definitely yeah. different times. Well, I mean, so, you know, showing up kind of the tail end of Vietnam. I mean, a lot of the leadership, I would say probably what mid-level captains, junior majors, and then obviously on up, all those guys were battle hardened and seasoned from Vietnam, lost a lot of buddies and really they fought the fight. What was the culture like? What was it like being a new dude learning from these guys? It was it was very intimidating for one thing. Um, so most of the majors, um, majors and above, most of them had seen combat. A lot in the F four. I was actually in the squadron. One guy who flew Sea Harriers with the RAF in the Falklands. Jeez, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He had great stories. Um, I can only really imagine. I mean, it was it was 
it was weird. So when I get to Torjon, I walk into the briefing room and there's four stand-up ashtrays in the briefing room. And these guys are smoking during the brief and they're smoking in the plane and all that. So that, you know, that part of the culture was still there, but it was, it was no kidding. The debriefs were no holds barred, no rank. Um, if it, if you weren't in your seat by the time hack, you didn't fly and it didn't matter what your rank was. And once the brief started, nobody opened that door, not even for an emergency. Even if the wing commander was in there and somebody got killed, they would wait till the briefing was over before they would tell them. And I saw that starting to wane a little bit as I got towards the end of my career. And so I think the seriousness that we took the training aspect coming out of Vietnam into the Cold War, um, I thought it was really important. And I was kind of sorry to see that culture fade a little bit as I got towards the end of my career. Yeah, I wonder if that's something, you know, I, I've asked myself, am I the old guy on the front porch, you know, sitting in the rocker? I think every generation probably does that. It, it's changed, no doubt, right? And I wasn't around back then, but you hear the stories, you're like, ah, it's it's drastically different. I think there's still, I know for a fact, right? I got a lot of buddies who are weapons officers, like who want to carry the torch and, you know, mm -hmm. the brief is sacred. You know, if you, there's no, you know, there's no excuse, you know, you show up on time, like you're there, you're there to be lethal, be the most lethal killing machine possible. They still respect it, but it is permeated with now, I think of a, making its way right into the ranks where it's no longer about the, I hate to say this too, right? Because it's a general, it's a general statement, but the profession of arms, right? I mean, the, the job of a fighter pilot is to go out there and kill things and break or kill people and break things right for mm -hmm. your nation. That's your sole focus. So when we start losing our focus with, uh, we got to worry about green dot training or making everyone feel happy and included like reflector belts. Yeah. Like, Honestly, the reflect about too that piece. I can never like. I remember being at Kandahar, and I felt like there were some people who were deployed. Their only job was to enforce reflective belts. And again, for people who haven't been to Kandahar, you know, it's a prime. While well, they lob IDF in, but I was like, wait, what better way to just like highlight yourself at night to someone who might be outside the fence with a sniper rifle than to put this big bright orange belt on, or even better. The Air Force PT shirt with the center of mass right over your heart, Air Force yeah. logo, and then the massive reflective Air Force logo on your back. Like, hey, I'm just going to make this job a little bit easier for you and just give you this nice big target. That reflective belt, um, totalian, to, 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 that reflective belt um, movement to the point where it was Nazified kind of started in the mid-90s. And... I can remember, so we had an ORI at Holloman in the 117. And once a month, we would do calm out, lights out, launches and recoveries. And remember, we were all single ship, yeah. right? So everything's calm out, lights out. And they would turn off all the lights on the base. So that was the way we operated. So day, night two of the ORI, when commander says, all right, shut off all the lights. And we, we're used to this, right? So yeah. we're operating just fine, everything in the... IG team 06 comes into the wing commander and says, Hey, my guys think this is unsafe. We want you to turn off the lights. And he goes, F you get out of my office. <laughs> and we never turned them back on because he, he was training us to go to war. Right. And, and these booger eaters were training us to wear reflective belts. Well, it's like one of those things too. Like, 
you know, I'm flying for the airlines. I'm on a ramp and they're at any given time around the plane. There are probably 15 to 30 people that are operating heavy machinery, driving all over the place that are worried about something else that, you know, I'm like high PK that I'm going to get run over. Like it's a high threat. So like, do I wear my little safety vest? Yeah, you bet. Right. Increases my chances of being seen in this type of environment where I want to be seen. And am I always looking around? Yeah. Cause it's the self-preservation piece. So it's like wearing a reflective belt on a flight line in a combat zone is silly. Uh, there, it's on the record. It's silly, you know. Like if if you're gonna get hit, the reflective belt is not the thing that's gonna save you. I'm just no, I'm going and, on the record there. But someone, yeah, no, right. And, it, to, and usually, what's gonna happen is because you're not paying attention and you walk somewhere where you shouldn't have been. Yep, no doubt, no doubt. And that's the thing. It's when. I told us another podcast, so the last deployment, we deployed as a squadron and our maintenance squadron, small base, and it was kind of bare bones being built up. We had some coalition partners there. And honestly, not only was it a really rewarding deployment, right, but the fact that it was just ops and maintenance and we were integrated. Squadron commander owned the maintenance squadron, you know, so everyone was singularly focused on what the mission is. And that's the piece is when people lose focus of what the mission is and where I really down the rabbit hole of griping is I think it's what is your role? If you're a seed guy doing the suppression of enemy air defense and stuff like you, there's a time and probably majority of it, you're a support guy, you're supporting someone else. So you have to know where you fit in the puzzle piece or in the puzzle, right? What piece you are in it. That's 90% of that mission. Yeah. And so if you, if you don't know where you fit and that goes, it's not bashing anyone. Cause again, it's a team effort and everyone's got to do their part. But if you lose focus of what the mission is and how you affect the mission, that's where we run into these like silly things where everyone is the most important and everyone, every mission is most important. It's like, no, like there is a hierarchy and it changes and it is dynamic. You gotta know how it fits. So I don't know. I feel better now. I've gotten that all off my chest. Thanks for <laughs> letting me just gripe and moan. I don't know what got me fired up today, but that did. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I'm sure we can go on, on, but yeah, so let's uh, kind of back to you. Um, so the Viper, and then you do an F117 round. So I know you kind of alluded to all night flying single ship black line, black line for those again who don't quite know. That's just flying a certain point A, point B, point C, point D. You just stay on the line and navigate along it. Um, yeah, so it was because uh, I, I listened to Tuna's podcast, and you know, we we used to joke that uh, so in the one seventeen, we didn't we didn't have a radar, we didn't have any radar, radar warning receiver, we had um, one radio, but once once you went into bad guy land, you didn't have a radio, you didn't have a tack hand, you didn't have any of that stuff. So if somebody shot at you, your only defense was just to lower the seat so you couldn't see it, because <laughs> if you turned you were going to screw up your radar cross section. Yeah. And, you know, people who do did get shot at, I mean, I had one shot at me, but it turned out to be an uncorrelated shot. You're just watching it move. So I thought it was going to the guy behind me and, and you don't know cause you don't have radios and he saw the same thing. And he was, so we were paired up, right. Two airplanes to a tanker. So we come, we get out and we would do uh, lights out, calm out rejoins at night to a hundred feet. Hey, all on timing again, things that sound terrible. Cause I always joke like the A10 guys, I'm like, you don't have a radar. What do you do when you got to find the tanker and the weather? I mean, air to air attack and, you know, yada, yada. But I'm like, nah, no, thanks. Yeah. That was, 
that was a bit unnerving. And plus, you know, I'd come from an airplane. I could see everything. Yeah. yeah, window, yeah, yeah. And now I got a roof. Um, and anyway, so we, you know, you, you get to the rejoin point and on your timing and basically you'd put your antennas out and turn your lights on. And there was my partner there. So we didn't really have wingmen and flight leads. It was because you were a single ship, but you were paired up with somebody. So yeah, we just break it up. Oh, there he is. Okay, good. And go home. You know, that piece too, like the deconfliction, as you're doing like mini blocks, like you're not going to get, he's going to go to the left side of the tanker, you're going to the right side of the tanker, but until you're visual the tanker and visual the other F-117, yeah. you're not going to leave your block? Yeah, we had we had pretty um, finite de deconfliction plans. Okay. And even in the target area, so you might have four guys hitting the same target with the same TOT. Um, so that's all deconflicted as well. And this is stuff that, you know, we, we basically refined to a, a really significant art form that guys would, on turkey shoots even, um, I can remember the weapons officer sitting there at three in the morning looking at tapes going frame by frame to figure out who won the money because everybody was in, was in like a half a second of the TOT. Yeah. Because it's all we did. It was a one-trick pony, but it was a really good trick. What was the training like going from the Viper to the F-117? So um, four guys to a class, and you'd walk in and sign for your own four-drawer safe. Oh, and <laughs> oh neat. <laughs> um and it had all the pubs in it and everything so it was they treated us like big boys it was we were all experienced you had at the time you had to have a thousand hours in fighters just to get into the program okay so these guys were not slouches um so in my class was uh, uh i had a weapon school grad an a10 driver and a guy who had just come from flying hawks with the ref Okay. And these guys were all great pilots. So it was about, I don't know, maybe three weeks of academics. And then we start some simulators and we do those for about, um, I think there were like six sims and then your first flight at night. And it was what we call the Star Wars takeoff. So you're out in the middle of the desert. There's no ambient lighting. And so the runway is lit. So it's just like in Star Wars, you go zooming down the runway and the lights are going by you. And then all of a sudden it's poof. And it's like your IMC. And it's, I'll tell you what, Tonopah at night with no moon is as dark as the inside of a cow. I mean, just <laughs> black. I, yeah, I feel like I, I mean, maybe could relate to that, but not even still, you know, with just like the ambient light off the jet. And then obviously flying with MVGs, that's cheating. Um, <laughs> yeah. Turns nine today. Yeah, I mean, Tuna talked about this. We didn't have anything like that because we were, we were fairly heads down, especially in the target area. But, uh, you know, and of course there were no two seaters. So, but the systems were pretty familiar cause they were stolen from a lot of other jets. So yeah. it wasn't difficult to learn the systems. Um, mostly it was just learning to fly a really underpowered airplane that had no drag devices. What was challenging? I mean, obviously the underpower part I get, but the fact that like no drag devices, so what? put it this way, if you show up behind the tanker a mile in trail with 100 knots of overtake and you pull both throttles to idle, you'll get co-speed with the tanker a mile in front of it. Yeah, I imagine the F-117 probably didn't like, um, I don't know, dynamic maneuvering as much as you can get away with yeah, the Viper. So it was clean aerodynamically, yeah. It would and it would go supersonic, uh, contrary to popular myth. Um it wasn't supposed to. There was a warning that said, if you do this, you'll die. But three of us did it that night and we didn't die. Um, but if you wanted, if you wanted to slow it down, it's a big Delta wing. So 
you roll it up, put about four G's on it, and you can piss away 150 knots in the blink of an eye. The yeah, because I you know I'm probably have Thunderbirds do it, and when I was doing the demo for my rejoins with like the Mustang or something, like going from 600 knots to 250 knots, I would just stomp on the rudder. I would just hold the rudder down. And it'd bleed about 50 knots every two potatoes, three potatoes, or something like that. Obviously under G2. There's probably some yeah. engineer that's cringing at hearing me say that right now, but it, <laughs> it worked. I feel like the F-117, you know, doing some some full control deflection probably wouldn't work out too well, but who knows? Yeah, I don't think it would. I don't think the computer would let you do it, but um, all great. you really had to do was just roll it up and pull on it, and it would just die right there. Yeah. So if you if you had too much smash on a rejoin, and of course remember as soon as as soon as you bank the airplane up to to get in position, now you can't see the guy anymore because it's he's behind the wall. So what I would do is I would just I would just dump the nose, roll and pull, so I knew I had a, a vector that was going underneath him, and I could get coast speed uh, if I had too much smash going in. But we didn't fly a lot of formation in the 117; is mostly for show. Yep. But uh, for the tanker. <laughs> Yeah, running around at night with no radar, trying to find the tanker on an air-to-air attack and, and then going, oh, there he is, and then going, oh, crap, I've got 200 knots of overtake. Yeah, that's that's your maneuver. I think I did it maybe once with, like, a tanker turn on um, where they're like, hey, we need we just want to practice. Mm-hmm. I, I forget now. It was, like, what the radio calls were, but you're just using the air-to-air attack and, and the tanker, you're, you know, beak-to-beak, but you're separated by 50 miles or so or greater, and the tanker is going to time it based on the air-to-air attack and to turn in front of you. And the one time I did it, they turned eight miles in front, like, ended up eight miles in front. You're like, well, sweet. This is going to take a year and a half to catch you and burn all my gas. Like, can you just do, you know, 90-degree turns until I catch up? This is terrible. So I can't imagine doing that at night and just like those guys had to be spot on. Otherwise you'd be painting into a corner pretty quick. So the best tanker guys I ran into when I was flying the 117 and, and all of them were really good, but these guys just seemed to be a cut above where the guys that were, that were doing all the strategic assets out of off of, you know, the kneecaps and all yeah. that stuff. Those guys, they, their SA was so high. They could actually off the air to air tack in, which was DME only could basically give you radar vectors to get a mile and trail with them. I mean, it was, it was, I don't know how they did it. It was pretty impressive. Yeah. Every now and then, you know, it, it works out. Sometimes they turn in front of you and up a mile in front of you. And it's just like real yeah. nice, but I don't know. It's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll handle the rejoin. Just let us do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you, so Tuna's episode, uh, we did talk obviously F-117 things, which to me, it's always interesting because it's a different, plane and i mean i'm growing up watching this plane it's just fascinating in fact i did see it in person once and i think that was probably 2003 or 2004 and i was at maxwell air force base and it's parked off in the corner getting ready for an air show no one could walk behind it you know it's security forces making sure no one's taking pictures of the exhaust section and there's like there's this like bug creature thing looking out there which is just really fascinating but what were some of the challenges as far as, you know, you're, you're, I mean, obviously flying at night, you don't have a radar. You're not talking on the radio. Everything is dark. You're alone and afraid. But when you're getting into the target area, can you kind of describe, you know, as a fighter pilot, what is going on, what you're having to do? Because you're working a lot with your nugget down, trying to figure out where the target is. And it's not like the modern day targeting pods we have, which even still can be a challenge of picking out your target. You kind of tell everyone what, what's going through and what it's taking in order to go fly that mission. 
Sure. So, um, so the air, airplane was modded during the time I was there, but during the combat mission, we had not yet gotten to the auto throttle mod. So you're having to moderate your speed by yourself. And the, you had a big screen right in front of the, the design was not that great in that respect. So you had this big screen that was your downward and forward looking infrared screen. And you could go, we had picture, we had a stack of pictures for the target area. And so it was kind of this big to small thing. You're kind of your own fact. Okay. So here's the target, but okay. See the town. Yep. See the town. All right. See the river. Yep. See the third bridge. Yep. Okay. Go three streets over fourth house down kind of stuff. So we were literally counting streets and houses and buildings uh, to find these targets. And so you start off on the forward looking infrared, which is a pretty uh, big picture. And then you were waiting for it. It would hand off to the downward looking infrared, which has a better view. So the issue is that the bottom of the airplane is not flat, right? It's kind of like the bottom of a, of a boat. And the downward looking infrared sensor sat on one side. So if you started to drift off the target and you banked, you could actually take the target completely out of the field of view. So you ran IP to target on the autopilot and you're steering the airplane with the cursor. And, and it knew what the limits were, so it wouldn't let you gimbal uh, out of the field of view of the target. Really? So the whole key was to get, get, the, get the weapon in the basket. So you had to be pretty close by the time it was ready to release. You could send for release. You hear the doors open. You feel the bombs come off. You see the doors close. And there's flashy lights in the cockpit that tell you all this. And now you are trying to hold that cursor on the target throughout the bomb's time of fall so that you get the best uh, accuracy. So these were GBU, GBU-10s and GBU-27s. So the 27 was designed for the 117. It's a Payboy 3 kit. So it had the what we call proportional guidance, where the 10s had the bang-bang guidance. But oftentimes we do uh, what we call dual-door deliveries, where we drop both of them. We might carry 110 and 127. So what you do is you drop the 10 first, and then a few milliseconds later, the 27 would come off. The 27 would pass the 10 in flight and it would make a hole in the shelter. And then you drop the 10 inside the hole and scramble everything. I actually have a picture on my wall here somewhere of a dual door delivery with two bombs coming out of the jet. And I guess it's so close too. obviously by the time you get the bomb to go off, I mean, it's, it's milliseconds from impact. So you're not worried about losing the laser spot or anything like that. Well, it's 30, so it's about a 30 second time of fall. Roughly. Okay. So from the time you drop the weapon until impact, about 30 seconds. But the the because the bombs are so close together, you're right. The they they're both seeing the laser and they're kind of on a, a physics no you can't disrupt my inertia trajectory. So they're gonna go in the hole. And the thing was just super accurate. You could yeah. put a two thousand pounder in a toilet from twenty five thousand feet every time. That's what I dropped several GBU twelves and those things were nail drivers, you know, mm -hmm. we had 38s and 54s as options as well. But for whatever reason, I just, I don't know, I ended up always, at least in the beginning, last point, just dropping GPU 12s. And those suckers, I mean, they were good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, magic stuff. <laughs> yeah. So there are a lot of really smart people out there that made some impressive stuff. Well, the, when they were, when they were putting these, uh, the 2000 pounders in the 117. So when a GPU 27 was in the bomb bay, you could, you could slide a piece of paper between the seeker head and the front of the bomb bay, but that was about it. 
And when they first started doing the separation test, they kept banging into the jet. And so some guy said, well, when we, when we open the doors, we're going to deploy these two little pieces of metal with holes cut in them. They look like Swiss cheese. And it disrupted the air just enough to keep them from getting venturied into the airplane. I mean, simple stuff like that, that somebody goes, oh, yeah, we can fix that. You know, it's crazy, too, that, yeah, that's such a simple fix. But, yeah, I mean, the fact that we're able to actually implement it, because obviously it's a need, like this nice multi-million dollar stealth fighter is completely useless if you can't drop weapons from it. So I guess there's the need. You can make it happen pretty quick. But everything else seems to take, like, a, you know, years to get done, you know? Like well, just... we, we had some really extra help. So when we moved to Holloman, every, we, had, we had one – Skunk Works contractor for about every two tail numbers. Okay. And he was just the guy, he was the fixer, right? So I come back one night and the moon had been out. And I'm like, he goes, Hey, how'd the flight go? And I go, I had a hard time seeing my displays because of the moonlight. And he goes, Huh? So I come out the next night, there's the guy again. And he had installed these, we call them elephant ears. They were these flaps that you could flap down over your uh, displays that would shade it from the moonlight. So I flew that. I go, hey, this was great. Well, the next day, all the jets had them. There was no paperwork. There was no mother may I. They didn't have to go through Air Force Material Command to do it. The guy just went, oh, I got a fix for that. Yeah, I wonder if that was, you know, obviously it was out of the contract. But it's amazing to see how things change now, right? Because talk about the F-35 and you hear some of that. Like I remember getting a briefing on it in like 2013 and they're talking about the the targeting pot and how it was specced off of 2002 technology. But I think they were still having to wait. It was like to 2014 or 2015 when whatever that part of the contract came back up to reevaluate to then update the targeting pod on it, you know? And you're like, man, we just cannot operate as fast as we need to. And Jello uh, over the fighter pilot podcast, he's had a, uh, a 06 on from DARPA. And then he was talking, referencing this army undersecretary from the 1980s and basically plotting out where the contracting line goes with spending and procuring weapon systems such as F-35. And he figures like 2054, the United States military would be able to buy three aircraft total. That's how much. And so far, he's like, you know, the F-22, the F-35 all plot along that curve. Much well, smarter guy than me. The acquisition process to the point where we can't buy anything. Yeah, it's it is it's crazy. It's not obviously it's not sustainable when you're talking about the millions and millions and millions of dollars just for a unit of one weapon system, right? And, and it's really probably talking almost trillions of dollars when it comes to the life cycle of the entire procurement process for. Well, that's 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 kind of the remarkable thing about you know when when like when I got in the F sixteen to where things are now, so. I mean, we were cranking out F-16s like crazy, and the software updates were coming. There, were, I think there were two worldwide software conferences a year just for F-16 software, where they get all the, you know, like because the Belgians had their own software and the Dutch had theirs and the U.S. had theirs, so we'd all get together and go, well, there's only so much memory in the thing. What are we going to change? But we were. I mean, we were getting new software updates probably every year. And then they went from, you know, 10 to block 15 to 20 briefly. Then the 30s and then the big mouth 30s and 32s, the 40s, the 42s, 50, 52. That that stuff all happened just during my career. And that doesn't happen now. No. 
Not, it does not, right? And I mean, I don't know if it could happen again. It it's not sustainable, at least the way under the current structure. At least being me, right? Like I'm not very smart, but just looking outsider looking in, you're like, I, it does not compute. You know, like two plus two is one point four trillion dollars. Like, ah, just. So I know they're talking M uh, 8.1 and now this information is dated for me from when I left active duty, but that was the next tape upgrade for the block 50 um, and block 40 for that matter. But it was going to be, I think it was like a, a year long process. And that was every jet was going to the depot, rip all the cables out, put new cables in because resolution limitations on the current MFDs, the center pedestals are already going in the guard jets. There might be a couple active duty jets at this point, you know, so you actually get an iPad high resolution type screen between your legs, which is a tight fit. But I remember, you know, sniper pod, you come back and look at your tapes and you'd see stuff that you wouldn't see on the MFD, right? Because it was just a, a pixel limit and a resolution limitation that was currently jet. So I don't know how much that costs, but it costs a lot of money, but we got to do it if we're going <laughs> to stay fighting in these fights. So it's, it's funny. I think we were a little more adept at adapting, uh, for a while too so you may or may not meet i don't think a lot of people know this but some of us do is that um so when i was in, in korea the first time uh ron fogelman was the seventh air force commander he eventually became the chief of staff and he used to come up and fly with us instead of flying block 42s at osan because we had big mouth 30s right <laughs> but we were shooting harms off the 30s and it was this incredibly complicated workaround where you had to, you know, trick the smiths and all these other things, but we could actually shoot pet shots with a harm off of a block 30 in 1991. Yeah. And, and I didn't think much of it at the time. Like, okay, because it was just a pet shot, right? It's a preemptive right. shot where you predict that maybe there's going to be a sand at this point, so you're kind of covering guys. And then when I got into the block 50 a couple tours later, and I started to understand more about, harms and you know weasel activity and all that and i'm like wow that was a really uh, creative way to put some seed capability into the korean peninsula without having to bring f4gs over because we didn't have there were no block 50s at the time yeah that's actually really fascinating because just thinking about what would have to go into pitching to leadership maintenance you know just to get the buy-in to carry a harm Mm -hmm. And now like, Hey, yeah, we're going to do this mission set. And then the, the fact that you're able to work around the software limitations of the jet in order to go do it and then come up with it, you know, the tactics and having guys employ it. That's no small feat. No. And it was because I, I think we, I think we had the latitude to be a little bit more creative um, with that kind of thing. I'm not saying that, you know, that we're not created with our tactics now and our procedures and all that, but it was, these were workarounds that uh, people came up with that they let us do it. And that's part that's amazing. I think to people now is that they actually let us do it and it was sanctioned. Yeah, I do have hope. I, there, you know, there's some guys now that I've worked for that are now making it into the geo level or, you know, Oh six level. And I do think a lot of the problems sometimes stem in that middle management Mm -hmm. part right where you know you got the chief of staff saying we must innovate we must innovate go innovate right and then it's somewhere in the middle it gets stifled because people are having to buy risk and that risk they buy if it fails impacts their career um so i do have some hope that you know maestro mal i've mentioned him on this podcast 
you know, he was wing commander at Shaw and went over to Afghanistan. I'm not sure. I think he's, I don't know what he's doing right now, but he's a guy, right, who uh, he called BS and said, we're not doing that because it doesn't make sense. But then also fostered that innovation at the wing level, right? And that's like the first, in my mind, that wing commander, you know, he's trying to get his star and move on, right? So anything that's like counter to what the Bobs are saying, I mm-hmm. can't imagine goes over favorably, but I multiple occasions where he turned around and said no to him. So, and then encouraged the innovation down at the the lower levels. So I hope that maybe we'll turn a corner. It's that pendulum swinging. Yeah, I think some of the most effective leaders I've seen um, from the wing wing level on down were guys that um, they either knew they weren't going to get promoted or didn't yeah. care if they got promoted. So they had nothing to lose. So they were willing to take some of those within reason, take some right. of those risks and, and be willing to fail. And I think that uh, some of the leaders I saw that were, that were lesser effective were so afraid of failure that they, they basically had boxed themselves into a corner. Yeah. And this is obviously the general statements, right? But I would hundred percent agree with that because there are definitely guys I've worked for and like squadron commanders. I've had some phenomenal squadron commanders and I've had some not phenomenal squadron commanders mm-hmm. and the ones who are not phenomenal. It's like, you can kind of sense and feel like everything they're doing is because it's CYA and they're not willing to take the risk because actually this here's like showing up to, to Shaw. I remember it wasn't the squadron commander, but it was someone else in, in the, the chain of command there. I won't say who it was, but, doing SA-17 takedowns. That was like going to be the bread and butter of the Block 50. And, you know, like I'm new and you're starting to do the research and studying. You're like, no, this is not going to work out well. Like, we, this is not this is not your Block 50. We're not going to be your problem solver here and go, like, we're all dead. Um, but I, I, I remember, and then, you know, you kind of figure some stuff out as you get to know more people who are in the know. And, yeah, it was purely this, this one guy who wanted to make 07. And he's like, oh. Yeah, boss, you want to solve the SA-17 problem? I got your I got your solution. Like it would have lasted about mm, 7.7 minutes <laughs> to the initial vol when everyone's dead, you know, but um yeah, there's there's a whole physics problem to overcome there. Yeah, so it's uh, interesting to see. Yeah, it's it's the guys who like you said, they have really nothing to lose and not worried about the promotion and they're willing to take risk. Obviously, they're not crazy or doing anything wild, but they're going to tell the truth and be honest and they they're attacking it realistically and we'll say well, no. It has to do with the evolution of the tactics too, because, um, you know, when I was, a, it was up until desert storm, we were still going in low altitude. Yeah. I mean, as low as you could go and as fast as you could go, as a matter of fact, cause we were, we were training for the hordes coming across the fold of gap. Right. So we were training to be able to deliver slick bombs underneath the weather at 500 feet and not frag ourselves. So sounds, we would do, um, you ever heard of the triple LD delivery? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So we would take a four ship and we do a fan, we'd fan them out and do drop four triple LDs on the same target and then all stay under 500 feet. And we practice that all the time. You know, what also sounds terrible that <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of things you're telling me that it's that, that didn't sound fun at all. No, they were, um, yeah, that one, those were kind of gutsy because, again, that's like outrunning the EMP. So you're trying to outrun yeah. your own frag pattern. Um, but we, we were doing that. We were doing, you know, we'd go to Insulic to train because we couldn't, we couldn't do practice. We couldn't have an exercise in Spain because of the status of forces agreement. 
So our forward operating base was Interlake. Well, back then it was kind of Sleepy Hollow. And you could do anything, you could do anything, go anywhere within 50 miles of Interlake. You could go any speed, any height, didn't matter because that was the agreement, right? So we'd all take off on these single ship nuke lines and the lieutenants would get together and go, okay, LPA is going to meet up at this point and then we're going to have a one to the 12th uh, dogfight. <laughs> Can you imagine that today? No. Oh, dudes are losing their wings. Well, you know, and that's the thing too. I never flew in Europe, but what is the code you squawk, right? You know, you could squawk a code and anyone was squawking that code. It was fair game. Uh, I got right. a buddy who he said he jumped a C-130 on final because it was squawking whatever the code was, but hey, fight's on. You squawk the code. Like it's free game to just go in there and rage. Not today. Yeah. Not today. No. And, you know, it's, I look back on it now and I'm like, man, we're lucky we didn't kill more people. Yeah. But I think it also, it made us grow up a little faster too, because we were able to make more mistakes because um, they were tolerated and we were able to kind of discover things on our own a little bit. And those things sort of, you know, it's like, it's like I tell my students at the flight school, I've tried to kill myself several times in an airplane, probably way too many times. I'm yeah. lucky to be alive. So this is why I don't want you to do this. And as a Lieutenant, we, we did a lot of scaring ourselves, Dude. but we had, we had a really long leash though. You know, it's one of those things to, yeah, there's something about it too. Cause you, I mean, you're obviously gaining airmanship in there and you're also learning from other people's mistakes, which is huge. Uh, I'm again, not that smart. So I usually, you can tell me, don't do that and I'll do it. And I'm like, dang it. I should have listened. Right. But I have to like learn the hard way. There's, there's something about it. Right. And it is, it does come down to airmanship and just going out there and making those mistakes or getting close to like realizing, you know, if, if this and this had happened, it had been all over and the story would be written a very different way, you know, and when you don't get it, it kind of goes back to, you know, we talk about, you know, streamlining syllabi and things like that and making it more efficient, uh, which is good. And I think we need to innovate to a certain degree. Right. But you, there's, you just can't replace time that you have air up under your butt flying around gaining those experiences because you don't have it. You're going to paint yourself into a corner as a flight lead or as an IP or whatever it is, and you're going to have four jets almost running out of gas because you never experienced that before, never did that, you know, as a young lieutenant and being, you know, a little heavy on the left hand and you being the light man in the formation. I don't know. Different well, times. I, I remember distinctly, so this is in the A model. This was one of the Block 15s, went to Green Flag from Torjon, and our four ship was led by the weapons officer. And we got wrapped up with the with the aggressors, and the next thing you know, we're going, oh crap! So we had to do we had to go out the west side to recover because we didn't have the fuel to get back. We landed at Indian Springs, nice. and my jet from the fuel truck took more fuel than it was supposed to hold. <laughs> and I uh, didn't find out. Yeah, but it was reading zero. We were all reading zero. But um, it's those kind of lessons where you go, I should pay more attention to my fuel and what my left hand is doing. And we all got too wrapped up in the moment. But that's also the value of the of the red flags and green flags is creating that intensity where you can learn those kind of lessons. It's just fortunate that we were able to all recover and and not have a problem. But, yeah, that that, <laughs> that never happened to me again. But right. 
one well, and, yeah. and you probably some of your bros who heard that story right probably didn't make that mistake yeah made another yeah. mistake right but um yeah. there's something about that getting painted into corners where there's a chance to recovery it's nice i remember I, one of the young lieutenants and again a last deployment new dude to the squadron like right before showing up gets done with mqt really fast his first it was his first combat sortie which was day he's following the squadron commander it's one of the things I didn't really think about because I don't know, maybe it just, I didn't get put in that spot or, you know, I had a little bit more time at that point, but he almost flamed out coming back, you know, cause you're a two ship, you're flying around in Iraq and Syria and there's no one else, right? Like you kind of have like free reign. You're just direct 700 miles. So there's no one else around altitude blocks, but he kept pushing forward a line of breast and he dropped back to like a wedge and then he pushed forward a line of breast and dropped back and pushed forward. Well, he soon realizes that he's not going to make it back to the field at their current altitude. And they end up sky hooking back. He lands. I think he had 400 pounds when he landed, which, you know, I'm like, that's, that is emergency fuel used to be 600 pounds. Yeah. That's like, that's the gauger, right? You know, like taxi uphill and (laughs) cough, the motor's done. So, you know, you hear that you're like, all right, that's just a recage. Like, I don't know. Don't be messing around with your fuel and, watch your left hand. I don't know, but yeah, it's, it's good lessons learned. And sometimes you just got to learn it the hard way. Well, and you know, sometimes you don't even realize the lessons that you're learning too, because, uh, I was, I was a brand new IP station at Homestead and, uh, I was giving the guy a flight lead upgrade ride and it was a low level to Avon park. So just a two ship, right. And we got some practice bombs, beautiful day. We're going to go up there at 500 feet. And so we get up to the, beginning of the low level route, we split us down to the low level structure, we roll out, and I hit a turkey vulture. And it shatters the radome, it bends the pitot boom 30 degrees, rips off the right AOA probe, the entire canopy is covered with blood, and I smell burnt chicken, and the, you know, I got warning lights going off all over the place. Well, we always briefed that if, if somebody ended up with battle damage or had a bird strike, that number two was going to take the lead. We're going to do a formation landing. He's going to take you down. I'm sure it's, it's still the same. He's going to take you right down into the flare, and he's going to go around. And we did exactly that, and it worked out great until the wing commander uh, comes out to the D-arm area after I shut down. So his name is uh, Tiny West. He was about six, probably 6'6", six, six, 280 pounds. <laughs> the All-American, uh, I think it was a defensive end for Florida State. Vietnam guy. I see the white top coming down the taxiway. He gets out, puts his hat on, looks at the plane, looks at me, and he says, Hiltz, what the F did you do to my airplane? Then he gets back in his car and drives away. I have to walk back because he just gets up and drives away. But it's, you know, (laughs) that lesson learned about being able to land on somebody's wing when you can't see out the front. Somebody figured that out. Maybe it was in World War I, and we still brief it today. And maybe you don't know why, but those things happened for a reason. And I got, I was the beneficiary of whatever that lesson learned was. Yeah, no doubt. I, I have recovered on someone's wing for, I had a dual generator failure, right? And like not the end of the world, you can see out front, you can do a no HUD landing, but it's nice to have someone there. I had guys with erratic airspeed indications do it. That's the scary thing, I guess, is one, there's really no reason to do a formation landing unless you're both out of gas and having the problem, right? Formation landings are just terrifying in my opinion, done a lot of them, but I think that's one of the things they've talked about going away. Um, 
and some of these syllabi, you know, but it is one of those things. If you need it, it would really suck to do the first one when you're flying on someone's wing or you're leading someone, uh, you have some kind of a catastrophic emergency going on, but yeah, I digress. Kind of chuckled you were describing that because you're talking about dual generator failure. We only had one. Um, and then the no HUD thing, well, in early days of the A model, uh, HUD was the HUD was not a required equipment item for a combat. Oh, wow. So if your HUD wasn't working, that was not a reason to abort. Because <laughs> you had a red reticle that you could tune up that yeah. was that was wired directly to the battery. It was on a DC bus to the battery. So you turn up the red reticle, crank in your mills, and there was a mill setting for the AIM-9 and for whatever weapon you're employing, and that was just that's the way it is. Yeah, back when men were fighter pilots. <laughs> you know? I remember well, when, I, you, yeah, when I had that The thing guy. I admire about the guys in the, that are out there doing it today is the amount of information that they have available to them and the amount of information they have to manage, especially in a – you know, we do, we do a lot of close air support, all the platforms do. Just being able to manage all that information and all that time sync that's happening is, is just really impressive to me because I think our tasking was, yeah, we had to manage the jet a little bit, but we didn't have nearly the information. So we were kind of ignorant going in oftentimes. And now there's all this information pouring into the cockpit and these guys have figured out how to manage that and be effective. And I'm, my hat's off to them. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, I think, Guys have said it that if you redid the Viper crew study, whenever they did, you know, they came out of the strike, you go and figured out, hey, it takes two people. I, like a seed mission probably would warrant two people like it did back in the day. There's just, I mean, it's a lot of data. You're processing a lot of data, flying formation. It helps doing more sensor type formations, being like a Raptor or 35. We're like, I don't want to see you. And I'll see yeah. you as soon as you land. You're right? on the data link. That's good enough. Yeah. yeah. So, but when you're flying line of breast and managing tactics and all the different, you know, the targeting pod, the radar and the, and the HTS, like lots going on there. And speaking of HTS, so the harm targeting system, you got some seed time under your belt as well, don't you? Yeah. Uh, so I, I participated in Kosovo. So I was actually flying weasels when tuna was flying 117s. Oh, okay. That's funny. And that, that 117 got hit. Um, so the squadron that I was in at, uh, Holloman was actually at Aviano with us and the squadron commander was the guy I had flown with. So after that 117 got hit, he walked over and said, Hey, you've flown both. We think we might need some help and you know what we do. So that's when we started kind of planning these coverages for the B2 and the 117 uh, with the block fifties over Serbia. And I think um, that was, that was the first time and I'd flown 117. So I don't want anybody around me. Yeah. But I think that's when there was some complacency with the planning and then the realization that um, if you're clever, you can still figure it out. So that's why you need just that little extra intimidation factor of having a weasel out there. Um, it changes the enemy's mindset when they know there's weasels. So in, in Kosovo, we, we use the same frequency every night and we didn't encrypt anything. Because we wanted them to know when we were attacking a SAM site and we wanted them to think we were attacking a SAM site when we were Winchester. So we never said Winchester. Yeah. Was it, I mean, were, it had to be pretty busy, I would imagine, during that there time. There were times when it was and times when it was boring. Um, but, you know, Magnum, when you say Magnum on the radio, that would that would scare them. Yeah. It was meant to. 
that's still a valid, if you don't have something in the air, that's still a valid suppression, right? Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, the threat was way worse in Serbia than it was in Kosovo. Um, matter of fact, that was my unit got a, got a MiG-29 shoot down uh, over Kosovo because some guy wanted to be a hero. So he launches up and next thing you know, you got four block 50s pointing at you and everybody's want, trying to figure out who gets to shoot this one poor bastard. So he took two slammers right up the tailpipe. That's, uh, um, he actually came back and he talked to us at Shaw right for eh, about two years before I left. We actually pulled his HUD tape from the vault. Mm-hmm. And so it's still sitting back there and got to watch it, which he was kind of, it was kind of cool dog. Cause he said that, you know, he hadn't seen it since probably right yeah. after it, but and, and dog's a good guy. He's a good speaker too. He did. Um, the best part of that story he was telling me is there's like four Eagles that just were on the tanker and they heard it and they all yep. punched their, their tanks right after they got <laughs> off the tanker, you know, and they showed up to the fight 20 minutes late. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that what they had done is they figured out that, um, so we would do, we go with an eight ship 45 minutes apart, right? So the first guys would go into the vault and then 45 minutes later, they'd swap out with another four ship, go to the tanker and we're doing this. So, and because we didn't hide our radio calls, they got used, they, they figured out that when we were calling bingo, that we were going to swap out. So they tried to launch this MIG in the middle of the swap out in order to catch us by surprise. So dog's four ship is coming out. The AWACS picks up the launch of the MIG-29 right away. And everybody goes student body right, and everybody single target track locks this poor bastard. It probably fried his raw gear. <laughs> and then once he got the ID, um, he put two into him, and it was it was over pretty quickly. But yeah, the Eagles put their fangs through the floor and dropped their tanks, and they were too late. Hey, be better. No, that's uh, so he came back and told us. Right, it'd be fun to have him on the podcast and oh yeah, that too. You know the um, I think he was saying too is like. Maybe it was a couple of years later, he was at the Kayok and he was riding in the van going there and some, you know, tech sergeant hopped in the van and started talking about this very story. But he was the boomer from the tanker that gave gas when the call went and he watched all these eagles punch their tanks and go. And he's like, yeah, wow. that was me. <laughs> so, That's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah there was the, so, yeah, the, the Kosovo missions weren't, there was a lot of, uh, close air support going on there. That's when the Tomcats first really started doing their AFAC stuff. Okay. Um, so there was all kinds of airplanes. There was hogs and hornets and Tomcats and Vipers. Everybody was in, in that fight. But at night up north, it was usually the 117s or the B2s. And so when they started sending us up there, it was uh, dark and there was, a lot of, there was a lot of SAMs. And when you, if you drew out all the SAM rings, it looked like an ass crack. So we called it Satan's ass. <laughs> we tried cap in the creases. And yeah, so there was, there was one night, um, it was a four ship, two, two guys aborted. So we manned the, the remaining two manned two cap single ship. And I think I was, I think it was one seventeens, but there's like an undercast deck. There's no moon and you're, you know, you're roaming around in this cap. And you got your radar going, you got your harm as a sensor, you got your ATS pod, you got your raw going, everything, and you're just on pins and needles. And, you know, you're trying to be a target so they don't go after everybody else. And um, this is probably the most scared I think I ever got in combat because I'm flying along and, you know, there's little tickles of raw going off here and there and everything. And all of a sudden, this huge light illuminates underneath me. And I'm thinking it's a missile launch. And I was, I was upside down looking for it before I could even think about it. 
and I, I had one finger on the stores jettison button and turned out it wasn't a SAM launch. It was a 117 bomb that had got off and the light from the explosion had propagated through the cloud. So I wasn't getting shot at, but it scared the crap out of me. The, so you're talking, I guess two, you're carrying two harms. Two harms, two tanks, uh, four missiles and, you know, chaff and flares and all that stuff. That's something too. I, so until you said you've seen them, the cloud layer, seeing weapons go off underneath the cloud layer is something unique. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, and hearing Tuna talk about, you know, his story and that's really probably the only guy I've talked to that I've heard it, but yeah, everyone else is like, yeah, you're just looking for a telephone pole. That's got a rocket strapped to it coming at you. But I imagine you get the RWR that's going off. So you're getting the different audio and for those listening to the error allowances in those RWR indications aren't really something you can base a lot of your decision making off of. Um, yeah. So looking outside and seeing those actual launches visually imagine during that time was, was probably a big Critical. piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. You had to be able to pick it up and, I've seen them launched, not at me, but um, it's pretty obvious when they, I mean, I had the one launched at me in the 117, but that one, I didn't actually see it come off. I saw it in flight. And by the way, SA-8s have a green flame. Um, So, but I'd seen them a little more at a distance in the, in the block 50. And, you know, you, you can see it on your other displays. So. I mean, I, I can't remember how many harms I shot during that. It wasn't that many, but um, I know I had one one that definitely hit something. And um, because the guys told me later that they heard them calling for ambulances about where right. I shot it. And um, another one, the site shot, it shut down the site. So as soon as it, it was about halfway through its time of flight and it shut down. Um, and then. And I had another one that was just a radio shutdown, you know, make a Magnum call and the guy shuts his ra- his radar down. So, um, suppressed. It, it was check. It was a in, that was an interesting conflict. How yeah. yeah? How long? How long are you so, there? Seventy eight days. Okay. That's. I remember that because I was in the seventy eighth fighter squadron, which is yeah. no longer at Shaw, but yeah, we were there for seventy eight days. Well, sitting down in the demo building, I was like a staff or something bushmaster mm-hmm. it's still down there you know it's got the snake head on it so it's yep. still around it's still the the 77th which i was part of that was the bushmaster squadron i think the time capsule i don't know if you're around for when the time capsule got put in the wall like general north who's the pack half commander he's got he was a lieutenant colonel at the time you know there's still there's still some heritage that's hanging around there from those days the bushmaster days yeah and that was so the this, the Bushmasters, so there were four squadrons at Shaw at the time, and the other three were 18 airplane squadrons. We had 24 because the demo team was part of the 78th. Yeah. So when I was the ops officer, I also had the demo team jets and pilots, and I got to fly some of the checkout rides for the new uh, demo guy, which yeah. was kind of fun, get in the back seat and have him go through his, his routine. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I might disagree with you. I did – 18 or 19 rides in the backseat doing checkouts. And I was nothing worse than pulling nine G's in the backseat of an F-16 when you're like, I don't know when he's going to pull nine G's, but it's going to be a lot and it's going to happen sporadically and violently. So, so one, one little quick story about that. So the, the, 
we're swapping demo guys because it was usually you did it for two years. I think that's still the case, yep, right? Still the same. So the new guy gets trained kind of by the old guy. And then when all the training's done, he had to go up to Langley and fly for the generals to pass. Is that still the case? Yep, still the same. Okay. So I'm the ops officer. I'm sitting at my desk because I was sitting top three or something. And my guy's up getting his demo checkout. And my phone starts ringing off the hook, like all the lines in the squadron. So it's all these people at Langley on the ACC staff are calling me because the guy on his, uh, on the sneak up pass went through the mock. Still told today. It's, <laughs> it's still told today as you check out in the demo. Pinto. And so all the fighter guys are calling me going, you should see all the booger eaters diving under dust. This is awesome. So yeah, we had to retrain him. Uh, it's like another 10 rides or something. Yeah. And, and, and for, I mean, it's a great story. Unfortunately, he ends up, uh, he ends up dying that season um, from not enough energy on a on a vertical, and yeah. uh, I tried to I tried to recover in the sim doing that profile. The only way you can do it was um, you had to go full afterburner and unload until you got past three eighty, and then put it on the limiter. Yeah, I, and that one came out of the demo profile, like the double inland to split S. Um, it was. Surprisingly, not right after that, which I know you were around, but um, the mid 2000s, because again, like we got a whiteboard, it's probably still there with all the maneuvers on it. And that one just has a big X over it. I always said, yep. too, split S's. And I was actually just talking to Kevin Coleman, who is an air show performer, and we we're talking about air show maneuvers. To me, um, the split S is the most dangerous maneuver in the demo profile. It's like the most benign, but they're, you're, it's the only one where you're playing things out, right? And if you aren't on your game that day and you play it out wrong, there's no recovery. Doing that double and then the split S, and there's a lot more that goes into that one too. But um, yeah, like you, you are pointing at the ground and you, at a certain point, you will no longer have any outs from it. So, Well, that's how that, that Hornet about four or five years prior to that pancaked at El Toro, uh, doing that same maneuver. Yep. And, you know, insufficient energy management is really what it comes down to. But I'm actually glad they took that out because it, it the, the potential for uh, error was just too high, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And that's, uh, I mean, again, it goes back to it. If you probably went back and look at military air show mishaps from dem like demonstration teams, I'm willing to bet a vast majority of them live in that split S regime or some kind of over the top maneuver where it's, you know, high to low conversion. The blue angels had one, what, 2016, 20, yeah, 2016 up in Smyrna, Tennessee with Jeff Coos. Um, again, split S incorrect energy management. And he was just too low to pull through. Like it's a it's, it's a super benign maneuver should be, but it can kill you really quickly. And it has killed well, a lot of guys. The change from my generation to yours is physics still is the same. Yeah. There's, you know, physics hasn't changed. So the airplanes are a little more maneuverable. I mean, you can see the F-22 doing its fancy stuff, but um, yeah, physics will still get you every time. Yeah, science, right? It, yeah. You know, it's, Dang it. <laughs> every single time, science is going to get you. Well, um, kind of talk about what you're doing now. So you're doing some GA-type flying in the civilian. Yeah, so for a defense contractor um, testing sensors on Army ISR platforms, so flying the Dash 8, which is a pretty good gig. Um, 
I had a difficult transition from a single seat to a crew environment. I think you've talked about that yeah, previously. No, I, can, I can echo I had it. bruises on my hand from reaching for the gear handle. Right. Um, <laughs> I can do this and talk on the radio at the same time. Yeah. No, you can't. Yeah. So anyway, I finally adapted to that. But um, and I know uh, you, you were talking to Smash the other night. So Smash and I are uh, co-owners and founders of a flight school out of Manassas. And we, we've set it up kind of like a squadron and we're trying to do it the right way and teach people how to fly, but give them the benefit of our experience. So it's a way to give back. Yeah. And it, it's really rewarding because I still like to teach. I mean, I've been flying airplanes for 37 years and it's still fun. So um, that's pretty cool. We're also the only uh, FAA certified test pilot course east of Mojave. Very nice. What, is that so cor- what does that course look like for guys? So it's it's a uh, it's modeled after Mojave short course. So it's ten flights, fifteen hours plus academics. And unlike Mojave's, you fly all ten flights. Mojave's you only fly one. Uh, you're data collector on the other ones. So you go out, you fly a specific profile, you collect the data, you go back, reduce it, and then uh, explain well what is that data really telling us about how this airplane performs. So it's. Uh, there are companies that require a test pilot certificate, and uh, there's a lot of home builds out there that would require, um, you know, this type of testing. And we've been working with EAA as well. Okay. And uh, there are uh, everybody's probably heard of designated pilot examiners. Those are the FAA guys that give check rides. Well, there's also designated engineering reps, which are essentially like DPEs, but they're test pilots. So they go out and they test these airplanes for certification. Yeah. I mean, yeah, talk about a transition, but it sounds like it's a lot of fun. And you did reference Smash, so we'll have an episode out with uh, your partner Smash there, which, spoiler alert, he ejected from a Hornet and inverted at 380 feet, which is a wild is, story. It's a scary story. Yeah, the fact of, yeah, it's just, I mean, dangerous business. I've said it before, <laughs> and a lot of people have said it. Uh, things can go wrong quickly, but, you know, you got an impressive, like you, Smash, and I'm sure you got an impressive cadre out there that are teaching people you're teaching the next generation to fly, which is awesome. Yeah, it's pretty fun. And we, we do have a pretty heavy military influence. We got young kids that we train too. But the, the beauty is when I listen to them, I kind of audit their lessons. They sound just like us. So the lessons have taken. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty neat to have um, to see what I think is the right way to teach somebody how to fly, to see that passed on to the next group. You know, it's it's like basic stuff too. So I referenced the dual generator failure I had while it was like right around Gary employ. Um, and we were already tight on gas, like we were making this employment happen. And it was in Syria. And it's like some basic stuff. Luckily it was a clear VFR day and we'd been there for a while. But just using references from the ground that I previously known, like where the tanker track was, right? And I think that was something that had been ingrained in me when I was a you know, learning to fly and then pilot training and being, you know, instructor there, you know, I was always harping on using ground references uh, because guys had harped on me about it. And it's just like some of the basic stuff. But on that day, it came into play, right, to be able to find and navigate my way back to the tanker. And again, it is cheating because it was a clear VFR day, right? But I had no, no, you know, radar or anything that was working. You could see that big old fat thing turning out there for miles. But um you know, it's some of those basics and you're talking about the swing checks you guys were doing like that doesn't happen now. And those things are, that's, what's going to be the glove save to catch you last minute. So there's things to airmanship that I think have to keep being passed down and keep being taught. 
some stuff has to evolve. Like using ForeFlight is amazing. Yep. Garmin Pilot, you know, that that is an essay enhancer, but you still have to be able to look outside and how to look at a map and say, yep, that's the road or that's the intersection or that's the hill or whatever it might be. Well, it's so funny because even to this day, so I probably, in a given week, I'll fly anywhere between six and 10 different airplanes just because that's the nature of the GA thing, right? So to this day, I still fly with a lineup card with my told on it. <laughs> it's got a few key frequencies, but it's got all the V speeds for the airplane I'm flying because if I'm, I might fly four different airplanes in one day. So it's yep. a way for me to cage my brain and go, oh, okay, this is, this is the airplane I'm flying right now. So yeah, I still fly and I, I give those freely to all my students and my instructors go, you don't have to use these, but this is what I use. So take it for what it's worth. But I can't fly without a lineup card on my leg. It's like a piece of my, it's an appendage. Yeah, what do you do? I mean, what do you do? I, I never use a knee board, but I, I mean, the G suit strap, that's where my lineup card went. Um, like Got to have the rubber band or something. Okay, so you got the knee board. Yep. Yeah. Do you got the, you got the hard back in there or no? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. This is from Lift Aviation. This is their navigator board. So it's got a little padding on here, but place for your pen and pencil and got a clip and a strap for, of course, I don't really fly with the flip pubs anymore, right. but. But yeah, that's what I fly with. Yeah, that's it's funny. Some things never change, you know. <laughs> and I mean, I make all my students get a kneeboard too. You're gonna have to write stuff down. What? What? We're gonna fly airplanes? No, this is more than just hands and feet. Yeah, there's a lot of numbers that get thrown your way on occasion. Maybe every mm -hmm. single sortie, you know, that you might want to know. But well, that was the one thing I had to relearn too. Was after flying uh, F-16s and F-117s, even T-38s was had to use the rudder again. Yeah, that's a thing. That's yeah. a thing. Um, I went and flew a carbon cub back in August, which was awesome. They let me do it, but it's like, ah, oh, I got to touch the rudder again. I think these things are down here and you, you need them on occasion. When you add power or take power out, you got to do some adjustments. I don't know. Cause even flying the triple seven, it's so smart that, you know, you have a single engine failure. They actually had to program in the yaw to it because pilots were taken off. They have an engine failure and wouldn't know they had an engine failure. So you're like, Oh, okay. We're going to program the error in or allow you to have a little bit of y'all in there. So you got to step on the runner. So you know, an engine failed. Well, the, the, the dash eight is not nearly that sophisticated, but <laughs> it's got, there's a 36 knot crosswind limit. Okay. Yeah. I've landed it in 36 knots of crosswind, but I still had half. It's got a huge rudder on it. So yeah. it's just, you can put that nose anywhere you want it. But yeah. These G airplanes actually do have a limit where you can no longer keep the nose straight. So <laughs> it's just not going to work anymore. Not going to work. <laughs> You're going to go off the side of the runway. No, sporty. Well, Hiltz, I appreciate you taking the time to to join me on the podcast. Tell everyone a little about your story. It's been fun chatting, and uh, thanks for again just taking the time and being here today. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're looking to help the podcast out, swing over to iTunes, leave a rating review. I really appreciate that. Also, additional content living over on patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. Until next time, don't bring a week.